Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember there... For where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for this great passage, challenging passage. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us as we think on it together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A news reporter for World Magazine just this past week wrote an article. In the article, she recaps her Traversing this country during some rather hostile times, if you haven't been alive the last year and a half, these are hostile times. And she spent time on the West Coast and the East Coast and probably some places in between visiting churchgoers and visiting churches. She went to Seattle where she said, I heard a fiery sermon. The pastor got up and he literally said, we're in a bloody battle. And you know what the congregation said, amen, brother. And in that crowd was a 55-year-old woman whose amen I'm sure rung out because the church that morning was just a pep rally for what was ahead for her day. That afternoon was visiting a rally for some up-and-coming political candidates that she was interested in. She couldn't stay there too long because after that she was heading off to a a rally that involved what do we do about homelessness and all the things that are going wrong in our city because of that. She couldn't stay there too long because she had to rush back to church for the forum of school choice in the public schools in their area. The reporter headed south to L.A., met a man. He and his wife had been in their church. They were in their early 30s. And they were no longer at the church. Been there almost a decade, she told the reporter, or he told the reporter. And and he said, we got to the point where even our home Bible study group would get into arguments about things going on in our society. He literally said, we couldn't even have a civil conversation. And they left. The reporter traveled to the hinterlands of Pennsylvania. And there in rural Pennsylvania, she talked with a 30-year-old woman where she and her husband had attended a church for much of their 20s. Used to attend the church for much of their 20s. Her words stuck with me 
we watched as our church caught a sickness. Exactly what she told the reporter. We watched as our church caught a sickness. We used to be able to disagree on secondary things. And they stepped away from that church. I'm sure those churches from the outside look very different. Seattle, L.A., rural Pennsylvania, no doubt they look different. But what a striking resemblance these churches had with one another. Each one, I'm confident, was fighting for the truth. Fighting for the truths they were convinced of. Each one, I'm also confident, was fighting for truth in a way they thought was the right way. Just like the first church of Ephesus, a church that Jesus provides a report card, an interim report, partway through the school year. And it might just be pretty important for us if we see anything at all in our world that causes us to say, we've got to fight for the truth, how do we do it in a way that honors Jesus, that's done in his kind of way? Perhaps this letter might be just what we need to hear this morning at this time. It's a famous church in a famous city, and it begins with this uh, series of letters to seven churches. Now, Paul, uh, John is, is out on an island. He's been banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, a few dozen miles off the shore of what now is modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is a port city. And and it is the most famous city of the seven cities in which Jesus will send the report card. It would be most natural that they receive the letter, not as much because they were most important, but simply someone coming with this scroll that John had recorded his teachings, the book of Revelation, would stop first at Ephesus, and whether he had come up with seven scrolls, had rewritten it seven times, or whether the same scroll made its journey. Nonetheless, the courier would need to follow the Amazon van around from one city to another. Instead of going to your house at night at night like they do now, they're going to go to the churches and have the scroll read to each of the churches. Jesus has already made clear in the last chapter who's talking. He says, I'm the one talking, and I am the first and the last. I have been walking around your churches for some time. It's almost as if he he were to, to describe a situation in which the seven churches, not just the leaders, not just the small group leaders, the whole churches gather around, and he walks around in their midst and says, I've been doing this for a while. I've been walking around among these seven lampstands. He just said in the last sentence of chapter 1, the lampstands are your churches. I've been walking around, and I want to remind you of the power I have. I I don't just hold seven stars. I have them in my grip, in my fist grip, (laughs) Eugene Peterson says in the message, to signify the power that exceeded the power of the emperor of the day. In fact, they had a tendency to try to prove their merits by putting on a Roman coin a picture of them or one of their sons literally holding stars above. Jesus says, I actually am the one 
who holds the stars. And with that in mind, I have the kind of power that can preserve you, hold on to you, and I have the kind of power that can release you as well. Listen to my evaluation. He'll say all seven times at the end of these letters. Let he who has an ear, let him hear what God's Spirit says to the churches. So he's making it clear who's talking, who he is, and he's making it clear that he wants you to hear what he says to each and every one of the churches, not just to you. It was a high-profile city in quite a well-known city, a famous church in a famous city. Let me tell you something about it, and I want to put a slide above that shows an artist's rendering of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What an impressive architectural structure it must have been. Had the attention of anybody who got near it, Certainly as you're walking around the town, it would have been what you would see from, I'm sure, any vantage point. This temple to the Greek god, the Roman god, Artemis. It set the tone when you walked into this city as a visitor, much less as a native, of what was important. The worship of a man-made god. You could spend some time looking at that and even worshiping there, but you would spend much more time in what I'll show you is the next temple, the Agora, the, the marketplace, where people from all over the known world would gather in this impressive square structure, basically like a big outdoor mall, considerable size. And it would be, of course, the place where where. You would not just barter and buy goods for the day, but business would be transacted. It was the happening place to be. It must have been an impressive structure as well. But as you walked through the doors, you didn't hit the handicap sign because you were lazy and the doors opened up and you walked through. You, you would walk through and there was the incense burner. The incense burner to the emperor. Right there as you entered the town mall. Around this time, the Emperor Domitian had decided, this was a town that, that I will bestow the honor of having a temple to me for my worship on the outskirts of town in a high place. The temple to Domitian was in the process or, un, or was finished at this time. And so, right there as you entered into, into, the, into, the, into the, the mall, the Agora, you would take a little pinch, it was expected, you would take a little pinch of incense and put it into the burner as an act not just of admission ticket, but of, of worship towards the emperor. It was a place that we learned quite a bit from the New Testament. We don't just need to look at pictures from that are modern-day renditions of ancient Temples. We don't need to just look at the architecture and ruins to imagine what's there. We can actually look right to the scriptures. When Paul was there and his friend, Dr. Luke, was writing a description of what it was like for Paul in Acts 19 to be there. It was a place that was so, so cosmopolitan that Paul could say, that could, could speak for two years, it says, in, in the hall of Tyrannus, he spoke for, for two years, it says, 
virtually every day as he taught. And he could say, according to Dr. Luke, that in doing that, all of Asia heard the gospel. It was a place that that many different people of so many different walks of life passed through or passed through and then went on to other places. And so this teaching, it was so cosmopolitan that Paul used that as a strategic place to stay put because he could stay in one place and affect the minds of many from various places. It was a place of the dark arts. And not Harry Potter style of dark arts. The magical dark arts. And fortunately, Paul's teaching, the gospel message that Jesus saves, got through to to quite a few of those who it says used to practice magical arts. And what was their response? They gathered their books in Acts 19. They gathered their books. I don't know if they brought them to, to church. They brought them to the town square. They met in the backyard. But they brought the books and threw them together. And it says someone counted the books and estimated the value. Look at it. It's in Acts 19. And they estimated it to be worth 50,000 pieces of silver. How much was a piece of silver back then? About About a laborer's day wage. Say that's 100 bucks. Might be an underestimate, but say it's a hundred bucks. Show off your math skills. How much is that in value? A hundred bucks times 50,000 people. I'll not tax you further. Five million dollars. Probably more. Five million bucks of dark arts books in one town? Just from some converts? Impressive. Impressive what pervaded that culture where this church was up against. And finally, I want to show you a picture, one more picture, that shows Demetrius. He was one that that made little statues, silver statues, of the god Artemis. And, And he was not, I think, according to the scriptures, near as interested in people worshiping her as paying for the statue, because he was a businessman, and he began to see Paul teaching about Jesus being the only way to heaven got in the way of at least some people buying his little statues. It wasn't good for business. And, and so he, he stirred up people, let people know this Paul is taking away from the worship of Artemis. And what did people do? They stormed to this arena that is still there today, well-preserved, estimated to, to have... On a, on a full day, you could get 20,000 people in there. And they sh- went in there, and what did they do in Acts 19? For two hours, shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours. What a place this was. Cosmopolitan. A, 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 a place of emperor worship, a place of, of, of just the dark arts, of all kinds of thinking, of the greatest temple probably of, of that era, at least in terms of architecturally, that was the pride and joy. Talk about a town that needed a church that would stand up for truth. Because what a hostile environment it was in. 
And the church of Ephesus certainly had a pedigree that enabled that to happen. Imagine clicking on their website, First Church of Ephesus, comma, Turkey, looking back in the sermon archives, going back 40 years. You might recognize some names. Apostle Paul, April 19th, 57 A.D. Uh, Apollos, June 15th, 64 A.D. I recognize some of these names. Apostle John, a year ago. You look up the marriage retreat, they recorded it. The speakers, Priscilla and Aquila, who spent time in Ephesus. Wow. Impressive. Think of the teaching early on in the life of this church. And think of how the backbone to survive in this environment, standing for God's truth, was was no doubt part of what became very much their DNA. It was a church that stood for truth, and Jesus noticed. It's what we see in in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. I want to read them to you. Because I want to see if, like me, you're impressed by what this church stood up against. And you're equally encouraged by how Jesus commended some specific things about them. He says, I know your works. Your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This, verse 6, you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Our theme for much of the year, if you had looked up on this board just not that many weeks ago, was hold fast as we look through the New Testament book of Hebrews and and preach through that. This is a church that held fast in some very key ways, some very key ways to what Jesus commends. It was a church of hard work in various ways, and several times, just in these couple of sentences, we see it was a church that worked hard, that that was hanging in there, even, it says, for my name's sake, for Jesus' sake. It was a church that labored to the point of exhaustion. They discerned false prophets, false apostles. That might seem a little foreign to us, but before the New Testament had come together, and letters would circulate from key teachings, but there was a, 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 still in an era where, where teachers would, would travel around, and some of them were true apostles, truly sent by God's Spirit, and others were just in it for their own gain and notoriety. And, and it says about this church at Ephesus, they would sit a man down and ask him, what do you say about Jesus? What do you say about him and how you get to heaven. And they would make sure that he lined up with with the teaching they had heard some 40 years before by the Apostle Paul and and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and more recently by the Apostle John who said, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that no one comes to God the Father except through him. They made sure that person lined up with that kind of teaching. And, And they 
they had a real problem with this group we don't know much about in verse 6, the Nicolaitans. A group that, that people have tried to sort out just who, were the, who they were and probably we know as much as anything when we just read down a couple of churches later. We'll hear about them in two weeks. It was, it was a church, it was, it was a group that, that infiltrated the church and did have a teaching that clearly was contrary to what the church taught. They, they, they promoted and, and held teachings that actually promoted eating food knowingly, that had been knowingly sacrificed to idols. That they actually promoted and approved of sexual practices that were in contrast to the teachings of scriptures. So this was a church that was holding fast to the truth. Bible teacher Jeffrey Wyma sums up what we learn about them this way. Their ultimate characteristic there at First Church of Ephesus was this, their passion for the truth and their aggressive effort to not be misled by the wicked. Their passion for truth and their aggressive effort to not be misled by the wicked. Just think if that letter was, was coming in on the scroll, they, they unrolled the scroll, and you're there at Ephesus listening to it for the first time. The reader gets up. He's read through chapter 1. He gets to this point in, in talking about your church. You're there at Ephesus. You've been attending for a while. And, and the, the reader, he's been reading for a while, and he, he has to just take a pause to, what, what, what is wrote? You have just enough time to say, that's why we're the big dog around here. That's why our church is special. That's why everybody knows about us. We fight for truth. We're known. These other churches, these other six, look up to us. Here's why. Jesus backs us up. But you know there's a little bit more to the story. That, that there's a, a, a change in the tone of what Jesus has to say coming up. But I want you to, at least for a moment, pause as if you had heard this, not several times or just a little bit ago for the first time being read, but you could pause here and actually pause long enough to see this is a church, had you been back there, you may well revere highly. Really respect. Listen to their sermon tapes as you're driving to work a few days later. I recall talking to a friend of mine. It's been some years. Christian man, church-going man. And, and he had a moral failing. Embarrassing to him, no doubt. Embarrassing to his family. He told me that it was a few weeks after this became known that perhaps the hardest words he ever heard were spoken to him by a younger man who was just plain brutally honest with him. When he said, I used to respect you. I got a pit in my stomach when he told me that. Imagining how, at least for this friend of mine, the, the color must have washed out of his face when he heard that word. But the pit in my stomach I got was not just feeling for him, but really was a holy fear. That could have been me. 
apart from Jesus, I am more than capable of what happened in his life. And worse yet, I'm more than capable if I don't hold on to Jesus of that being in my future. You know, there's a place for fear in the Christian life. You say, Jesus kept saying, don't fear. The angels always say, don't fear. No, there's a place for fear in the Christian life. When that fear has you thinking, that could have been me. You hear about somebody else's failing. That could have been us when you hear about another church. That might be us in the future. Save the grace of Jesus enabling us to hold fast to him. This church was on the road to to loveless orthodoxy. And like a friend of mine said when I told him recently I was preaching on this passage, he says, I go to a great church. Apart from the grace of God, I could see us get on that path. Appreciated his honesty. Wasn't taking away from his church. Wasn't, wasn't a criticism. He just was being honest about a healthy fear that he had about his church. It's important, my friends, we don't get it wrong about being right. That's what this passage is all about. A warning to not get it wrong about getting it right. Like the woman in the hinterlands of Pennsylvania, we watched our church catch a sickness. It was possible back then, and it is possible today, my friends, to get it wrong about getting it right. But love is the lifeblood of the church. It's there, number three in your outline. And it brings us to really the crux of this message. Let me read verses four and five to you. But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from, your, from its place, unless you repent. What is the love they had at first? Well, people disagree about that. Have a few little arguments, I hope friendly, among Bible scholars. But it's nothing we need to get too troubled about. Because, really, there's only two options here. There's one of the two great loves that the Scriptures talk about, that Jesus himself said, sum up all of the teaching of the Law and the Prophets. It could be a very direct love for Jesus, love for the God, the Creator God, who has saved us. It could be a looking-up love that needs to be restored. It could be... A love for neighbor, especially the church. The scriptures talk about that, of a doing good, of a particular love for those within the church to a special degree that complements the love for the lost world out there that needs Jesus. Personally, I find it's perhaps best as many Bible teachers who have studied this to say both. To say, you really can't even have one without the other. You love Jesus in a way that honors him. 
it shows itself in a love for others. You love God's people the way the agape love that, that, is, that is required, that is, that is so emphasized in the New Testament in Jesus' teachings. You forgive somebody 490 times like Jesus says. You don't do that without a love for God, a reverence for what he's taught, an appreciation for what he's done for you. And a motivation that comes from saying, the least I can do as a servant of the Most High King is to love and serve those in my church and those that are lost without my Savior. But Jesus says some pretty pointed things to them. Things that I hope as a church we would never have to hear so directly from Him. I have this against you. Uh, you have abandoned. You have fallen. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Those are pointed words. Those are words you can't just dismiss saying, I think he's a little mad at me. (laughs) I think he's a little frustrated with us. It's a lot more than that. When he says against you, my words, my, my thoughts went to, to a very different kind of passage, Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love those words. But Jesus seems to be saying the converse is true as well. That, that the whole world can be for you. You can be revered by the world, by, by all who, who, who exist, all created beings in heaven and earth. But if he is against you, it's all for naught. I have this against you, he says, that, that you have abandoned. I, I would feel so much more comfortable had he said, You've, you need to do some tweaking here. You, you need to... Adjust the priority list, church at Orchard, church at Ephesus, church in rural Pennsylvania. Yet, you know, let's do a little adjusting. You've gotten a little off track. You know, you're kind of on that little you know, path. You've gotten some weeds on the side of the highway. Let's get you back up here. You'll be okay. Get back on the path. But he says, in preserving and holding on to the truth, in evaluating the hostile teachings to the gospel, in, in interacting with the world that is saying things that you know are not right, that, are, that is pushing your culture towards things that are, that are clearly against God's will, God's intentions, God's teachings in the scriptures. In doing that, you've not just made love a lower priority, needs to get buffed up a little bit. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love for me and love for others that was so integral and defining about how you once started. And you have fallen. You know, I never asked, one of the things as an emergency room doc, we, we have to activate a trauma protocol uh, a full activation, if somebody's fallen from a certain height. Now, I, we care deeply if somebody is frail, has osteoporosis, and, and falls from a standing position. But I've never gone into a room when I know that the background is someone 
tripped and fell and said, well, how far did you fall? I, I got a measuring tape. You know, can you stand up against the wall over here and let's measure it? Oh, yeah, five, seven. Jesus is not saying you, you fell from a standing position. It's as if he's standing there and say, church, look up. Uh, uh, up there. Uh, up there is where love was the defining characteristic of the church here. And where you held on to truth. And we're down here. Where you're holding on to truth, but you've abandoned love. For me, for one another, and for the world you live in. And I'm going to remove your lampstand. Be nice to kind of Make, make that scene not quite as, as dramatic, as harsh. Say, maybe he's going to, you know, it's a candelabra. Maybe he's just going to, you know, put out a few of the lights. You're not as bright as you once were. Things are dimming a little bit in terms of your influence. People aren't logging onto the website and checking out your sermon archives as much. No, it's, it's not a, hey, things of influence, things of notoriety. They're not just lessening some. You can't get around that the most obvious teaching is Jesus says, I'm going to remove out of the seven churches one of them. And there'll just be six. This church will die. That's what he's saying. Unless there's change. He says there's a way to change. One of it is just what we did. We're, we're looking back and trying to remember what it was like before the fall. Not at Genesis 3 fall, but, but the fall in which what characterized our church became a loveless love for truth as opposed to a loving love for truth and those in our world and the God who wrote that truth. We need to remember and remember what we were known for and the things that, that most characterized us as a church, as individuals, when love was the defining characteristic of who we are and who we were. But then there's twice said we're to repent. We don't use that word very much. Maybe occasionally in a courtroom, someone, some reporter might say, I don't, I don't think this person was repentant enough, you know, looking at their face and the artist's sketch of, of the person in the guilty box. But repentance... I, I had confessed as I thought about it and even studied it more in recent weeks, I, I, I was a little off on some of my thinking about it. I really, I'd always heard, and I think it's accurate, that the idea of, of repentance is a, is a U-turn, turning away from the direction you once were going. But it has much more to do with a turning in the mind than a turning with the legs. At the very root of it, the very teaching, it is a changing of one's mind that is being asked for. You say, I'm supposed to think differently about the gospel? I'm, I'm supposed to think differently about the main truths in the scriptures? You're telling me I need to think differently about things that are bothering me deeply in my culture that I think are offensive to God, that are clearly off the path of what he intended? No, not at all. It's a little bit more 
like someone who hardly was an apostle, Jack Nicholson said in the movie A Few Good Men, when he looked out at Tom Cruise, the lawyer in the courtroom, and simply said, you can't handle the truth. Remember that line? I've wondered, as I've asked for some personal application of the Lord as I thought about this, if that may well be the very crux of what I'm wrestling with. How do I handle the truth? The issue for me is not near as much how I preserve it sometimes, maybe for you, but how I handle it as I face issues within and without the church with those that disagree. It's got me wondering if maybe one of the best things I might need to do in the morning is not some morning stretches or calisthenics or some hideous green drink that tastes like cement or something like that. But I I might just need to reach into my little black bag that that I keep in, in, in my closet and just put on the blood pressure cuff in the morning. And, and monitor. Of course, I see people in the ER that get one of these things and drive me nuts because they're there at 3 in the morning because it's been fine for the last 23 hours, but one reading was two points above normal, and they wanted to wake me up in the ER to let me know. But what if I made a point of saying, I want my blood pressure to go up primarily, if not only in situations in which Jesus would have had his blood pressure go up. You know, Jesus did get angry, didn't he? He got angry in some very specific situations. He got angry when there was people who set themselves up as religious leaders and authorities, religious teachers, and they spoke in ways that was contrary to the clear teaching of, what, of God's Spirit. He got angry and even said some pretty nasty, harsh things to say about someone who would lead a little one astray. How much does a millstone weigh? You know, the one that he recommends you tie around your neck when you jump into the lake if you're leading a little one astray? 600, 800, I saw some estimates, over 1,000 pounds. Imagine Jesus saying, would you mind go tying a rock that's 1,000 pounds around your neck and jumping into a lake? Be better off for you than leading a young one astray from the truth of how they are saved, how they come to God. But Jesus' world was filled with hostilities, with people who were off track, people who were lost, people who were troubled, people that had some bad ideas. And yet what characterized him over and over again was a gentleness, a compassion, a a grieving for their state, a love for them. And I suspect that for many of us, the numbers ride high too much of the time when Jesus would have had a compassionate, gentle demeanor. It wasn't letting go of truth, but handling it in a different way. It seems to me spiritual maturity shines when for the many issues in, our, in our, our lives that are opinions and personal preferences and tastes that are important but less important than the gospel, that, that spiritual maturity shows up when humility and gentleness and a calmness of spirit is what characterizes us. Not a return of hostility, 
Not a return of, of harsh one-liners. Not a, as Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, a desire to just, under your breath, call him a jerk or much worse. The, there's a report card that came, a second one. It, it came to this church in Ephesus 10, maybe 15 years later, to them in the form of a letter from a church leader named Ignatius. He, he lived in the second part of the first century, and he died about 107, 110 A.D. He, he was uh, the key church leader, the bishop, in, in Syria. And he was arrested and, and taken to Rome, and his, his expectation was that he'd be martyred. In fact, martyred in one of the Roman arenas at the hands of the beasts, being torn apart. And though we don't know the details, we know he was martyred. May well have been. That's the fate he met. He was a respected leader. He was one that, that knew Onesimus, another Onesimus than the one we probably meet in the New Testament some decades before. But he, Onesimus was, was the key church leader in the church of Ephesus 10, 15 years later when Ignatius is arrested and taken to Rome. And listen to what Ignatius wrote around 105, 110 A.D., perhaps 1020 years after this letter from Jesus went to the church of Ephesus. He writes to them, On hearing that I came bound from Syria to fight the beasts at Rome, you, church of Ephesus, hastened to see me. I received all of you through Onesimus, your pastor of inexpressible love. Onesimus greatly commends your good order in God, that, that you are living according to the truth, that there's no sect, no, no deviant teaching gathering within your church. Indeed, you, you hearken to Jesus and the truths that he taught. Church of Ephesus he writes, you are renowned throughout the world. They're still there, and their reputation, it seems, may well have even grown since they heard Jesus' teachings 15, 20 years before through Revelation. But he adds, finally, some continued words of encouragement, so consistent with what Jesus told them. Be meek in response to their wrath. It's a hostile world still. Be humble in opposition to their boasting. To their blasphemies return prayer. And for their cruelty towards you show gentleness. There is a column that you will see if you go to modern day Ephesus. I have one more slide I'd like you to see up on the screen. If we were to go to modern-day Ephesus and tell the tour guide, could we, could we go to that place in which uh, the, this famous ancient wonder of the world is, this temple of Artemis? They would take you to a plain, and you would see there a single column, a single column that actually is not original to the temple of Artemis. It was actually some stones that were laying around that in, in over the years some people managed to get together and put a single column of gathered stones to remind themselves of where this temple of Artemis once stood. That's all that's left of this great, phenomenal, architectural wonder of the ancient world. 
May our legacy at Orchard not be someone putting together in some distant time a few bricks. May we get it right about how to hold on to what's right for Jesus' sake. Father, I thank you for your teaching, your challenge to us. May we, by your grace and with your help, be most characterized by love. And may we, in these hostile times, hold on to truth in a way that honors you as well. Give us both, for we are dead without them together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.